0: The passage that uh, the Lord has laid in my heart for tonight is found in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 8 And I want to read the whole, the whole chapter It's not a very long chapter so it won't, it won't take as long to go through it So 1 Corinthians chapter 8 And Paul's obviously writing to the church at Corinth here And this is what he says now About food sacrificed to idols We know that we all possess knowledge Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food... We think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. So that I will not cause him to fail and we trust that God will add his blessing to the reading of his word let's just come before him in a word of prayer our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father we thank you for this precious time where we can gather together like this around your word and Father we ask with the sincerity of our hearts that what we have not you will give us what we know not you will help us Father to understand and what we are not Father you will make us That we might live lives that will glorify and honour our God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose precious name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes you come across some passages of scriptures or some chapters which, at first reading, it leaves you scratching your head a little bit. Maybe it leaves you feeling a little bit perplexed and thinking, well, what on earth has that got to do with me? As Christians I'm sure we all believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that all scripture is God breathed, useful for teaching, training, correcting and rebuking, so that we might be equipped for every good work that God has planned us to do. But sometimes we come across passages and this might be one such passage entitled in in my Bible anyway, Food Sacrificed Idols, and you think, well, what does that have to say to me living in the Western world about food? What does it really mean? Does that mean that if I take a wander into the kebab shop, just a couple of doors up, that I have to really worry about where that food has come from? Or does it mean I need to question whether I go and eat uh, Indian food or Chinese food? Actually, it's got nothing at all to do with that. And the more we take a look at this passage, and the more we think about the circumstances surrounding what Paul is saying here to the church We actually find that it brings to the forefront one of the greatest principles of Christian living, one of the greatest pursuits of being a Christian and that is simply to love, to love one another. You see, this is the, the second subject that the Corinthian church had brought to the Apostle Paul when they wrote them to him. Paul had already dealt with some issues that were in the church in chapters 1 through 6 that other people in the church had bought, brought to Paul. And then in chapter 7 he begins addressing some of the issues that the church there had written to Paul about, the first being marriage that you read about in chapter 6. And now he addresses this subject here, food sacrificed to idols. And to understand what this says to us today, we have to understand a little bit about the context. You see, food that was sacrificed to idols was a real problem for the church at Corinth. Corinth was a real mix of many different cultures. There was Christians, there was Jewish people, there was Greeks, there was Romans, there was pagans and all sorts of other types of Gentiles. And in Corinth there would have been temples all around the city to many different gods. And sacrifices would have been taking place in these temples on a regular basis. But just like today, the Corinthian people were very sociable. And it wasn't uncommon for your friends or for your neighbours to invite you to a meal. Whether it was just for a social occasion or whether it was for a celebration of something, they would invite you along to have a meal with them. But rather than this meal taking place in their homes, the meals would take place often in some of the courtyards and some of the rooms within these temples. And the food that was served at that meal was often food that had been used earlier on in the day in one of the sacrifices. But not only that, some of the food that was sacrificed would be given to the priests of those temples, and what the priests couldn't eat, they sold in the local marketplace. So even a Corinthian Christian going about their daily shop could quite conceivably and quite easily come into contact with food that had been sacrificed to an idol. You see, it was quite difficult for the Christians at Corinth to avoid food that had been sacrificed to an idol. And it was quite difficult for them to adhere to the decree that was issued by the church in Jerusalem that you read about in Acts 15, to abstain from food polluted by idols. But you see, there were some Christians in the Corinthian church who believed that they had a knowledge that allowed them to eat that food with a clear conscience. You see these Christians knew that an idol was nothing. It was it was man made. It was created by human hands. It had no deity. It had no power of its own. Other than what other normal men ascribed to it. It wasn't a real God. And there was only one true God. They believed that this knowledge allowed them the freedom and the liberty... To eat what they liked with a clear conscience. But of course it wasn't everyone's thought in the Corinthian church. That's why we have this subject raised to Paul in this letter to him in Paul's response here. Paul's response on idols begins here in chapter 8 and runs through chapter 9 and chapter 10. But really the issue in chapter 8 isn't food sacrificed to idols. Paul deals with a greater issue. The issue of knowledge versus love. The issue of what we know and the freedom that gives us and how that allows us to act versus love and how that ought to make us act be pleased to hear we're only going to look at chapter 8 we're not going to look at chapter 9 and 10 tonight but I would suggest that if you want a fuller explanation on what Paul thought about idols then you could read that in your quiet time but in chapter 8 I want to look at three things first of all the the conflict between knowledge and love secondly what happens when we make decisions based on knowledge and not love and then thirdly and finally the true pursuit of of Christians. In verse 1 to 3. Paul jumps straight into this issue. He seems to for- ignore the whole thing about food being sacrificed to idols. And jumps straight to the heart of the matter. In verses 1 to 3. And this conflict between knowledge and its actions. And love and how that ought to make us act. You see there was a little bit of Greek influence here in the church at Corinth. That drove the quest for knowledge. Essentially, the more you knew, the better you were. And nothing elevated your status in society more than displaying your knowledge in public for all to see. And you see that's what some of the Christians in Corinth were doing. So certain of their knowledge that an idol was nothing and had no power and had no deity and and had no value. They were exercising this liberty in public quite freely. Often going along to these meetings or these feasts in idol temples. In fact I'm certain that they would have been of the opinion that had they not exercised this liberty afforded to them by their knowledge they would have been as well admitting that they were wrong and that's something that some of these Corinthian Christians didn't want to do but listen to what Paul says about knowledge, he says in verse 1, he says it's not exclusive he says we all possess knowledge in some degree or in some form he also says in verse 1 that knowledge puffs up he's used this phrase before in in the Corinthian church letter in chapter 4 when you read that some men say I follow Paul or I follow Apollos he uses the same phrase here to describe the pride that some of them had in following these superstar Christians but here it's in reference to the pride that they had in themselves as if they'd achieved something And therefore its only use was for self. He says also in verse verse 2 that it's it's incomplete. He says if you think you know, then you don't know as you ought. He goes on to explain this further in chapter 13 and verse 12. where He says we only know in part what we think we know. It's only partial. And it's only when perfection comes that we will know in full. But intertwined with this explanation about knowledge, Paul lays out love and what love is all about. He says in verse 1, love builds up. You see where knowledge is is haughty and it looks down on other other people, love works from the bottom up. Where knowledge is selfish and and proud, love, love is humble and selfless. Where knowledge is, is temporary and, and incomplete, love is permanent and love is complete. And then in verse 3 he says something that's, that's quite strange. You might expect Paul to say in verse 3 something like this. The man who loves God knows God. Consider him he's talking about knowledge versus love here. Which is true. In First John 4 and 7 it says everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So that would be a true statement to make. But yet Paul says this in uh, verse 4, or verse 3 sorry. He says the man who loves God is known by God. The man who loves God is known by God. And that's true also Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 says the Lord knows those who are his do you know in the world that we live in today is there anything greater than knowing that God the sovereign Lord knows you and knows me intimately not just knows me and knows you but loves me and loves you And died to save me. Died to save you. Is there anything greater than that? Any greater knowledge that we could possess in all the world. Other than to know that God knows me. And God knows you. What about us today? Is there times when, like the Corinthian church here, we've perhaps placed knowledge ahead of love. I suppose you only have to look at the the history of the church down through the years to see where knowledge has been at work in the absence of love. I suppose it's more or not more evidenced than all the different types of denominations that we have within the Christian church today. All because certain groups of people thought that they knew something that someone else didn't know. Whether that's evangelical brethren... Baptist, free, reformed, Pentecostal, the list goes on. Some say that this provides variety for different people. But you can imagine if all these churches were together, just like they were in the church in Acts. It says of them that they were all together in one place and had everything in common. How often in church history have we allowed what we thought was knowledge to create division within the church and how detrimental has that been to the work of the Lord in certain locations I'm sure we can all think of examples where churches have been torn apart because some folk think they know something more that other people don't but even within denominations today, there seems to be a, a certain academic status or standard that, that sometimes has to be breached dependent on what celebrity preacher you follow. I remember in a previous church being on the interviewing committee for a new pastor. And one of the other interviewers asked the pastor, um, who's your favourite author? As one of the questions during interviewing the pastor, I thought gave a very good answer. He says, "My favourite author is the Lord Jesus Christ, because He is the author and perfecter of my faith and the author of this word." Of course, that's not the answer that the the interviewer was looking for at the time. He was looking for, "Well, I like to read, you know, J.C. Ryle or Dale Ralph Davis or you know John Piper, some of these big names." I thought the, the potential pastor gave a very good, a very good answer. But it just goes to show you where we place knowledge above above love in our Christian faith and in our Christian lives. Now, don't misunderstand me. I know that it is important for us to grow in our knowledge, to spend time in God's word, and to use things like like commentaries. I remember uh, a few years ago now uh, standing in a standing in a bookshop in Glasgow, a Christian bookshop and I had a wee giddy New Testament out and I was debating about what kind of commentary to buy on this particular book and I was comparing two and I must have been there for quite a while That an old gentleman came up beside me and says you struggling to, to decide which commentary to buy and I says well yeah I'm kind of torn between these two and he says to me why would you want to read a book written about the book when you can read the book itself so needless to say I put the two commentaries back and rather sheepishly went back out of the shop, I did come back about an hour later and I purchased one but you kind of get my point it's not It's not all about how much knowledge we have yes it's important but Paul, Paul reminds us in, in chapter 13 of Corinthians he says this if we can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge but have not love then we are nothing you see, the more we know, the more we know God, the more we know of his word, the more we should love one another. The more we know, the more we should love. The Lord Jesus Christ say by, by your knowledge will all men know that you are my disciples. No, he says, by your love for one another. That's how everyone will know that you are my disciples. You see, there there, there was an issue with making decisions and living your life based on what you think you know. And Paul goes back into the issue around idols and food sacrifice to them in verses 4 to 12. He explains the effects of when our knowledge makes a decision in the absence or ahead of love. He says this in verse 4 and in verse 5. Seemingly to agree with those who thought that an idol was nothing. He says, yes, in verse 4, an idol is nothing in all the world. And he says in verse 5 that they are so-called gods, i.e. they're only gods because a human being has decreed them God. They have no deity, no life of their own. And he says in verse 6 that there is only one God. Also when declaring the the Shema in verse 6, the Lord your God is one. You see how Paul again reverses this idea of building yourself up with lofty self-acquiring knowledge and actually reversing it to a point of humility where he says, Yet for us there is but one God the Father from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things have came and through whom we live. You see he's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying that everything that we have comes from him and is for him. It's not for ourselves. It's not anything that we have acquired. It's not anything that we have done but it's only through the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have and that we are what we are. He goes on to say though in verse 7 that not everyone has this knowledge about an idol. And the consequences for them are in verse 9 that this can become a stumbling block or they can be emboldened and encouraged by it and as a result of that their their faith is destroyed. You see, what was happening here is As the church were reaching out into the community People were getting saved People who were once going to these temples And worshipping these idols Were coming into the church And God was saving them But you see the very next day they would maybe be out in the street And they would look up And they would see at the window of the temple There's John from the church In that temple Eating a meal I thought that life that I was living was, was wrong and I had to turn away from that and, and follow the one through God. But yet here's someone who's been in the journey of faith longer than me doing something that I, I used to do, something that I thought was wrong. You see, and what was happening to that young Christian is they then began to think that actually what was going on was okay. And the next time they were invited to go and share in a meal in one of these temples, they would go out and share in a meal in one of these temples. And because they didn't have the same knowledge about idols as some of the more mature Christians, they would then be drawn back into that lifestyle. Drawn back into the lifestyle that they once had. The lifestyle that they would turned their back on. That they had repented of in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the faith that they had was ruined and destroyed because... They saw someone else doing the same thing. You know, I wonder if there's parale- parallels in Earth church life today, or there are parallels in my life today, that could perhaps cause someone to stumble and to fall. Take the example of perhaps having a glass of wine with dinner. The Bible doesn't say that it's wrong to have a glass of wine with dinner. In fact Paul reminds Timothy to have a glass of red wine for his stomach problems. It's drinking excess that's a problem. But that's fine in the home. But what what I've in this day and age I'm out with my wife for a meal. And as people tend to do they take a selfie when they're out for a nice meal. And they share it on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And there on the table is a, a glass of wine. What of what a young Christian And I don't mean young in age I mean young in the faith What if a young Christian then sees that on Facebook or on Twitter Maybe a young Christian who has had a life with issues with alcohol in the past And they've realised how wrong that was And how sinful their past life was And they've turned from it And yet here they see me Someone who's been on the Christian road for some time now Having a glass of wine would that maybe encourage them to go back and have a glass of wine or an alcoholic drink? And because of the lifestyle before, would that then encourage them to fall back into a lifestyle that they've, they've turned their back on, and therefore to sin? But it's not just about that. What, what about what about my time? I know I don't look. Like a cyclist, but I'm actually quite a keen cyclist. I'm, I'm built for downhill, as they would, they would say, and not, not going uphill. But I do like cycling. And uh, every year, you've probably seen it advertised, there's something called Pedal for Scotland. And it's an event that's a cycle from Glasgow to Edinburgh. There's a short cycle, 41 miles, or you could do a sportif, which I wanted to do, which was 100 miles. And I I kept putting it off, and I said, this year, this year is the year that I'm going to do and sign up for that that Pedal for Scotland. So I, I did, but it's on a Sunday. It's on a Sunday, and it's all day. 100 miles, that would take me a good few hours to cycle 100 miles, even if it is all downhill. And I had my mind set that I was going to do it. And in a couple of weeks before it, we were at church, and our elderly brother came up and says, you know, it's so good to see you here with your family. I'll take my kids along to the, the breaking of bread service. It's so good to see you bringing your young kids along to the breaking of bread service. I felt this big. Because I thought, things he doesn't know that in two weeks' time I'm not going to come here. I'm going to be out on my bike cycling through to Edinburgh. But <clears throat> regardless of what he thought, what, what if there was another Christian who was young in their faith, who coming to church wasn't, wasn't habitual for them? What if a Sunday morning for them was a day for lying in bed and taking it easy and, and, and chilling out? Or maybe going to the shops... But they've been saved, and they're, they're getting into the habit of coming to church on a Sunday. What if that Sunday they turned up and noticed that I wasn't there, and that was away doing some daft daft cycle from Glasgow to Edinburgh? Would that then encourage them maybe to say next week, ah oh well, for a really tough week this week, and you know all sorts of things going on at work and home, and a really busy Saturday. And, do you know what? I could just I could just be doing me be having a day off today you know I could be spending some time in my bed on Sunday rather than going to church it's alright Stuart Stuart was not there last week he missed last week I can miss this week and then one week turns into two weeks and two weeks turns into three weeks and so on and so forth and there because of my simple actions someone else's faith has been destroyed or what about spiritual differences or doctrinal differences you remember at the start of Corinthians people were saying I follow Paul or I follow Cephas and we're talking about today's celebrity preachers I remember doing a cycle Uh, you might know Gordon Thompson Gordon Thompson is the same kind of build uh, as myself and we did a cycle from Glasgow to Oban uh, last year I made a support car coming back and forward Bringing us drinks and bananas Just to, to keep our energy up And I got chatting to the guy who was, who was driving that car his name was Andy I'd ask you to pray for him Andy was a Christian He was only a member of his, of his family He was saved And he went along to a church in Glasgow And they got a new pastor And that new pastor had a, a, a slightly different look On one of the doctrines A doctrine that is what I would call a minor doctrine one that's debated readily within church. And of course he was quite, quite resolute, quite adamant that this was right and what Andy thought was, was wrong. And this, this caused Andy no end of trouble to the point where he stopped going to church. He stopped going to church because the pastor had been putting his arm around him and saying, ah, that's fine, it's okay to have these differences. The main things are the main things and there's some things on the periphery. You know, whether you're a pre-millennialist or millennialist, it doesn't matter. What matters is the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather than doing that, he didn't. And it caused Andy to, to leave the church. But of course, Paul reminds us here that it's not just the effect that it has on our brothers and sisters who see what we do and then as a result follow that and get sucked into the life that they once lived. It has an effect on us. Paul says in verse 12. To, to sin against a brother and sister in this way. Is for us to sin against Christ. Not them. How terrible is that. That we allow something that we think we know. To cause someone else to stumble. And to fall. And as a result. That person's life is lost. But we have sinned against the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we avoid this sin? Paul gives us the answer. Right at the very end. He says this in verse 13. He says if what he eats causes his brother to fall into sin. Then he will never eat meat again. In other words Paul says if by eating meat caused another brother or sister to fall into sin. I'm willing to become a vegetarian. Even though I know there is nothing wrong with eating meat if someone else is stumbling and falling because of my actions and because of what I know then I'm going to change that I'm going to put my love for them before anything that I know that's fantastic how selfless, how how loving, how humble the Bible says greater love has no man than this than he would lay down his life for his friend what are you willing to do, you and I willing to do For our brothers and for our sisters. To show that we love them. Of course the greatest display of this selfless. This love. This humility. Is seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds us of that in his letter to the church at Philippi. When he says we should have this nature in us. The nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing how selfless of the Lord Jesus Christ that he would let go of his position in heaven the glory he shared with his father from eternity past to come down into this scene of time for you and for me taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man the king of glory coming here as a servant king to serve you and to serve me wow and then Paul goes on to say he humbled himself by becoming obedient obedient to the will of his father in heaven obedient even to death on a cross how far was he willing to go for you and for me. How far are we willing to go. For one another. The more we know. The more we know of God. And what he has done for each and every one of us. The more we should love. One another. As we enter this new week. May we be driven not by. What we know. Or as Paul says what we think we know. But maybe be driven by our selfless love for one another so that as we come and we meet and share together, those who look on from the outside will look in and see the Lord Jesus Christ because they will see our love for one another and desire to have what we have, may God bless you and keep you this week Amen, thank you Yeah, let's just close and pray <clears throat> our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father again we thank you for this Privileged time that we can come and gather round your word. Father we are amazed at your love for us. We've been singing about it. A a selfless love. A love that endures. A love that is steadfast. A love that knows no end. A love Lord that caused you to come into this scene in time. To take on the very likeness of a human being and the nature of a servant. And to humble yourself by becoming obedient even to death on a cross for sinners such as us. Lord, what love you have for us. Help us, Father, as we seek to honour and glorify you with our lives. Not to exercise what we know or what we think we know. But as we know you more, help us to exercise our love for each other more. Because by this will everyone know that we are yours because we love one another. Help us to love each other. Help us to build each other up. Help us to encourage each other. Help us to be a source of strength to one another. As we seek to honour and to serve and to glorify you in all that we do and all that we see. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.